just want to say good afternoon to all of you. My name is Jesse. I'm one of the pastors here at Zoe Community Church. Hopefully you're at the right service, uh, but this is Zoe Church. We like to keep things simple here, and we kind of have a simple thing that we're doing for Christmas this year. Uh, we're doing an Advent series, and like I talked about last week, uh, Advent means arrival. That's basically the simple definition of it, and we're talking about the arrival of Jesus Christ into our world. We're talking about the incarnation, the birth of Christ, and I'm assuming most of you know the general story about Mary and Joseph and the angels and the wise men and the shepherds and being born in a stable and how Jesus was placed in a manger and all of that. So what we're doing this Christmas, this Advent, is we're looking at different angles of this story, kind of looking at it from different places or different perspectives. And the way we're doing this is pretty simple. Like I said, what we're doing is we're looking at... uh who Jesus is, what child this is, that's the name of our series, from the perspectives of the four gospel accounts. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So last week we looked at Jesus' genealogy from Matthew 1, what we could learn about the child, the Christ child, from his family of origin, from his ancestry. Today we're going to be in the book of Mark, as you might expect. So if you could turn there in your Bibles, if you're not there already, Why don't you grab your Bibles, open up to the second book of the New Testament. So it's Matthew, then it's Mark. Go to Mark chapter 1. We'll be in verses 9 through 15, but I'll start from verse 1, just so you can get kind of the context from the beginning. I'll read from Mark 1.1 all the way to Mark 1.15. Give you a second to get there. All right, Mark 1 verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. The spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. And after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. This is the word of God. Will you pray with me? Let's pray together. Father, as we come before your word this afternoon, asking the question, what child is this? Really wanting to know about who he is. God, I pray that you would help us to see from your word that he is the one we've been waiting for as we sang. 
God, there are so many layers to who Jesus is. He is your son. He is the Messiah. He is the Savior. God, I pray that as we look into the book of Mark, God, as we sit under the teaching of your inspired and perfect word, God, that you would help us to see who he is with a new clarity. God, and I know that for many of us, and you know this, for many of us, uh, this story is is so uh, so well known that we can almost, uh, we're so over familiar with it, God, that we can almost be tempted to ignore it or to not really allow the the magnitude of what we're reading to impact our hearts. God, but I pray that you would help us today. I pray that you would move us. And I pray, God, that if there are those here who don't know you, God, that you would lead them to yourself again through your word. God, we pray that you would do what only you can do. We give this time to you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Years ago, a movie came out, a comedy. And I've never seen the whole thing. Okay, just putting it out there in case you want to judge me for watching movies as a pastor. I never saw the whole thing, but I have seen part of it. And the part I saw was, let me just say, at the very least, sacrilegious. Okay, it was irreverent. It was something that was disrespectful. And you might wonder why I'm even bringing it up in the first place, if that's what I think of this clip. But that's the reason. Okay, so I'm going to explain this to you. I'm not going to say what movie it is, but in this movie, there's a scene where the entire family in the movie gets together for a meal, and they proceed to say grace before they eat, and the husband, the father, leads them by praying specifically to the baby Lord Jesus. And he's going on and on, baby Jesus this, baby Jesus that, until finally his wife interrupts him, and she says, look, he grew up. Okay, he's not a baby anymore. You don't have to call him baby Jesus. He grew up, and I want you to say this prayer right. And you're kind of hoping that maybe the wife is going to stand up for God, right, the God they believe in. But instead, she goes on to say something to the effect, you know you need to say this prayer right because we need God to let us win tomorrow because the husband is a race car driver. That's about... The, as far as I'm going to go and letting you know what movie this is, some of you are laughing, and now I know which one of you, uh, which ones of you are sinners out there. Just kidding. If you've seen it, you know what movie I'm talking about. You might have seen this scene. So they get into this argument. The children chime in. They have a different opinion. They like to view Jesus as a ninja, they say. And look, okay, I hope this goes without saying, even though I bring this up in church. I'm a pastor, and I'm not endorsing this movie. I'm not going to tell you to go watch it. I'm not even going to say what it is. At the same time, I'm also not bringing it up. I was just kidding. I'm not here to stand in judgment over you for, you know, a movie you watched in high school or something like that. So why am I bringing it up, though? Why bring this up at all? Why am I bringing it up to introduce the second sermon in our Advent series? Well, the husband slash father slash race car driver in his argument with his family He specifically says that he prays to baby Jesus. You know why? He prays to baby Jesus because he likes, quote-unquote, Christmas Jesus the best. And that always stuck with me. I always thought maybe I would use this someday in a sermon, and today it happened. Now, again, I'm not saying that this is good. The reason I bring it up is because it's not good. 
But there's something to that. It should make us think a little because the thing is, while I might and you might, we might not endorse this kind of thinking, I think we all understand to a certain extent that it's not uncommon. The truth is a lot of people like Christmas Jesus the best. He's their favorite Jesus. Uh, For some people, he's the only Jesus. The only time they think about Jesus at all in their lives is during December, I guess after Halloween now or whenever we start thinking about Christmas. And what's not to like about Christmas Jesus? What's not to like about this baby, this cute baby in a manger, bringing the general ideas of peace and joy and love and light into the world? What's not to like about this inspirational story about this child who grew up in a poor town but made something of himself? Who would have a problem with that? So around Christmas time, you kind of notice this, right? People are more open to Jesus than at any other time during the year, listening to songs about him, letting their family drag them to church, maybe even shedding a tear when you watch Peanuts Christmas and Linus goes up and he shares the true meaning of the story. It's a little emotional and moves us a little bit. Maybe you even pray a little. You're like, you know what? I'm feeling a little spiritual or religious. I'll bow my head for a second. Let me say grace this year. Let me ask you a bigger question as we get into this second sermon in this series. Why do you think this is? Why do you think Christmas Jesus is the one that we gravitate toward? Why do we like baby Jesus the most? Why is Christmas Jesus such a hit with people, whether they're Christian or non-Christian, whether they're a churchgoer all their lives or a church avoider all their lives. There might be more than one way to answer this question, but this is the other reason why I brought up the movie to start us off. Remember the race car driver, he liked baby Jesus the best. Remember his wife wanted him to pray correctly because she wanted God to help them win the race the next day. And remember that the kids like to imagine Jesus as ninja Jesus. What's the common thread here? They all like to think of Jesus as someone who required absolutely nothing from them. No real thought, no true adoration, not even the courtesy of considering how he might want to be thought of, and definitely no worship. They all liked Jesus okay, which is fine, but only a Jesus whose existence was for them to enjoy at their own convenience. Only a Jesus who was a blank slate for them to project whatever they wanted on him, whatever thoughts and ideas they enjoyed. And I think that, if we're honest, that is a major thing that we like about Christmas. Because at Christmas time, when we think about even some of these religious things, when we sing these songs, it's mostly the good vibes. It's mostly the positive things. It's the things that are easier to stomach. I think a major reason why people love baby Jesus the best, if anything, is because baby Jesus is a toothless Jesus, literally. Now, don't get me wrong, okay? No disrespect to baby Jesus. He really was a baby when he was born. Most people are babies when they're born. Mary, Joseph, the angels, the shepherds, the stable, the manger, the animals, the baby. That's part of the story. That is the story. Okay. I'm not trying to denigrate that or pushing, push, uh, I'm trying to, I'm not trying to push us away from that story at all. But the question we're going to ask today, especially in light of the text we just read is, is he just a baby or is he more than that? Because I don't know. It seems like there's more depth to the story. 
Shouldn't it, I don't know, maybe affect us more? Should it shake us up even a little bit? Does it require something of us? Because when you look at Mark, well, okay, here's the thing about Mark. All right, some of you even thought this last week when I announced what the series was going to be. So we're going to do an Advent series from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, looking at all the different, uh, looking at these four angles, looking at the Christmas story from these different perspectives from all the gospel writers. For those of you who are kind of, you know, astute Bible readers, you were thinking even then, and as I read it now, you were thinking it, how are you going to do Mark? Because Matthew talks about the Christmas story. Luke talks about the Christmas story a lot, the most. John even has his own kind of theological way of talking about the Christmas story. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. But Mark, there's one major problem with the entire premise when it comes to Mark. Mark doesn't talk about the birth of Christ at all. And that's why I read the first 15 verses, because you had to see it for yourself. As far as Mark is concerned, where he wants to start the story, he starts the story when Jesus is 30 years old. Now, there's nothing we expect. There's no angel announcement, no Gabriel. There's not even Mary and Joseph. There's no baby. Jesus appears on the scene, and we immediately hit the ground running. There, there's a completely different cast of characters. There's John the Baptist as an adult. There's Satan. There are animals, but they are wired, wild animals in the wilderness. Mark introduces Jesus in a totally different way. So what we're going to do today is we're actually going to look at this way that Mark introduces Jesus. And there is Christmas in here, okay? But what we're going to look at are these three quick fire vignettes that Mark paints, three scenes that he gives us to introduce Jesus. It's not the same as the other gospel writers, and I think for our purposes today, that's really good. It's going to help us see Christmas from a different angle, help us see Jesus from a different angle. Because Jesus, understand this, Jesus is more than what people often think of during this season. He's better. He's more important. And the truth is, even if it's harder to accept, he has more to say about our lives and how we should respond. So let's get into it. Okay, let's get into it. Three scenes, like I said. So we'll have three points as we do. First, first point, the divine Second, the driven. Third, the decision. I'll explain these as we go. First, the divine, which is about where Jesus is from, where Jesus is from. Now, real quick, pop quiz. Don't raise your hand. Don't shout it out. Just think about it. Pop quiz. Where is Jesus from? Where is Jesus from? If you know the Christmas story, and I'm operating under the assumption that most of you do, you know that Jesus at least was born where? In Bethlehem. I see people mouth it. Bethlehem in Judea, that is the southern part of Israel. It's notably where King David was from. So you could say that Jesus was from Bethlehem. Now that being said, look at verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from where? From Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. So Mark says that Jesus came from Nazareth. And maybe you've heard of this town before. It was just a little tiny village, really, in the general Galilee region, which is in the northern part of Israel, far from Bethlehem. And it was where Jesus grew up. It's why people called him Jesus of Nazareth. It's where he learned carpentry. It's, it was where he played in the hills with his friends and his brothers. It's where he was shaped. His formative experiences were in Nazareth. Nazareth. So Mark says that in those days, Jesus left Nazareth and he came to the Jordan River to be baptized by John. And as far as Mark is concerned, this is the right place to start. This is where we're introduced to Jesus. 
He's a full-grown man. This is the first we see of Jesus in this book. And the issue, the issue that we are confronted with right away, is kind of a Christmas issue. When we think about Christmas, we think about how he's born in Bethlehem. Here, though, the question is, where is he from? That is the question. Now, a little context. Shortly before this, John the Baptist had begun a ministry of baptism. He had been calling everyone and anyone to repent of their sins. We see this in verse 4. And repentance, right, if you know what it means, it literally means to turn around. Right? You're going the wrong way, and you need, to, you need to go back a different way. It's charting a new course, a new direction in life. And this is what John was all about. He was talking about spiritual repentance. He was saying that you guys are going away from God, and you need to turn around and come back to where he is. And many people were going out to hear John, to get baptized, But then Jesus arrives to be baptized, and Mark kicks off the story of Jesus with his baptism, not his birth. And there's a lot to this. There's a lot we can unpack. Why is Jesus getting baptized? It's not like he needs to repent of his sins. It's not like he became a Christian either. I mean, he's Jesus. He doesn't have to become a Christian. But Mark doesn't focus on any of these things. In fact, if you read the other accounts of his baptism, they'll talk about the conversation that Jesus had with John, how surprised John was that Jesus showed up for this. Mark leaves all of that out, which is curious because Mark is usually the most detailed of all four of these writers. But look at verses 10 and 11. This is what Mark wants us to focus on. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. And See, this is what Mark wants us to focus on. This is how Mark chooses to begin. At the River Jordan, John the Baptist baptizes his cousin Jesus. And as Jesus is lifted up out of the water, the sky itself opens up and the Holy Spirit descends on him like a dove. And God the Father speaks and declares that Jesus is his beloved son. And here's the question. It's not a trick question. Where does this voice come from? Where does it come from? You know, a lot. Of, I know. I know a lot of you guys out here um, personally, and I know that a lot of you here at least have made one major move in your life. Maybe you were missionaries, or maybe you moved halfway across the country to Texas, the great state. Maybe you went away to college, something like that. When my family and I, uh, when we first moved to Texas, we moved from. California, I know, boo, California, but we moved from California to help start this church, and uh, we were all in, okay, no turning back, okay, we weren't just going to try it out and, and hold out hopes that we could return, we, we moved here to make this place our home, but there was some confusion, I think, in our own minds and in our own hearts about where we were actually from, um, and I thought about this story recently, about a year after we moved, we went on a road trip to see my wife's brother out in Atlanta. Christine's brother. Uh, We went to this place. If you know Atlanta, we went to this coffee shop called Octane. And I was talking to the barista a little bit. And he said, where are you guys from? And I said, we were in town visiting. And I said, we're from Texas. Okay, we're from the Dallas area. And he said, cool. That's it. But afterwards, me and my wife had a debrief about this. She said, that was very weird. Why did you say we're from Texas? Because we're actually from California. And I said, okay, that is true. 
but how much of my life story do you want me to explain to this guy? He just wants to like have a small talk conversation. I mean, I'm supposed to say, well, we live in Texas now, but we're from California. And actually, you know, my ancestors are from Japan. And if you want to go all the way back, I mean, Garden of Eden, have you heard of it? Right? So I just told him Texas because Texas now was literally where we came from, right? That's where we drove from. And that's where we called home. But I bring this up because we all have different ideas about how to answer this question. We have different assumptions about what it means to be from a place. What does it even mean? Because the truth is, and we know this at Christmas, that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, that, that this is very important, right? According to prophecy, the Messiah, the chosen one that all of Israel was waiting for, that the world needed, was going to be born in Bethlehem because that was David's city. He would be a king in David's line. So the Christmas story rightly focuses on this fact. But it is also true that Jesus was raised in Nazareth. And that is significant because he was born in a small town. He, he wasn't raised in splendor. He, he didn't have a lot of hype around him. So it's true in different ways that Jesus is from Bethlehem. It's true that he's from Nazareth as well. But Mark wants us to think about this in a deeper way. There's more to where he's from. This is how he starts, where he's really from. Because think about it. Where did Jesus, oh my gosh, where did Jesus literally come from and where does he call home? Now turn with me to John 7. I know we want to look and stick with Mark, but I want you to see this. And we'll be in John in a couple weeks. Keep your place in Mark 1, but go to John 7. A couple books after Mark. John chapter 7, and I want to pick up in verse 40. John 7, verse 40. Okay, you guys there? John seven forty. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ, the Messiah. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. Now, I know we're just dropping into John 7, but understand this. Okay, once Jesus hit the scene in Israel, he immediately became the biggest thing around. A surge of excitement shot through the general population. But there was also some confusion. Right, who is this person? What should we expect of this person? Clearly, he's something else, something special. He's teaching like no one else has ever taught. We've never heard this before. He's doing things we've never seen. We've never seen anything like this. Could this be the Messiah, maybe? People were wondering. They were trying to contain their hopes. Could this be the Christ? Everyone was talking about it. And that's what we see here in John 7. People are actually thinking through it. And they're actually thinking biblically. And one of the things that they're hung up on in this text is where Jesus is from, because they all knew that Jesus was from Nazareth. That's where he grew up. That's where everyone knew him from. But they also knew that the Bible taught that the Messiah would come from Bethlehem. And of course, we're Christmas story experts. We know he was actually born in Bethlehem, but they don't know about Christmas for some reason. Okay. It's because, uh, they didn't have like the Bible written down for them yet, but they're thinking correctly. They want to know, okay, who is this person? Where is he from? So they're trying to fi uh, figure it out. But then look at uh, chapter 8. Skip ahead a little bit. Turn the page if you need to. Chapter 8. Pick up in verse 21. 
This is Jesus talking directly to them. Uh, John 8, verse 21. So he said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself since he says where I'm going, you cannot come? He said to them, and pay attention to this. He said to them, where I am going, uh, sorry, he said to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, who are you? Directly answering or asking the question, Jesus said to them, just what I've been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true. And I declare to the world what I've heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the father. Now, John is not the easiest book to understand. It is a very deep book. But let me just point out what Jesus said again. He said, I am from where? Above. I am not of this world. And this is a serious conversation. Life and death hang in the balance. This isn't a barista making small talk. He says, if you get this wrong, if you don't know who I am, then you will die in your sins. Understanding who Jesus is is paramount. But see, understand that understanding who Jesus is is inextricably tied to where he is from and how you understand that. And this is why I belabor the point in this first point. Okay, it's not factually incorrect to say that Jesus is from Bethlehem or Nazareth. Both are true in their own way. But Jesus says you're not thinking about it right. You're not thinking about it right. You're not thinking about it deeply enough. It's not about a question of where I was born or where I grew up. The real issue is, am I from God or not? Am I from God or am I not from God? And this leads back to Mark 1. Go back there. This is what Mark starts with. He skips over all the Bethlehem stuff. He barely talks about Nazareth. Instead, he speaks of the baptism, and then he doesn't focus on that even. Instead, he skips over to the part where heaven opens up. And the Father says out loud that this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. See, what Mark wants us to understand is that Jesus is from above. He is from heaven, and that's where he'll go back. Jesus is more than a normal human being. Jesus is God the Son. He is divine. See, in Jesus, we don't just have a child, as important as that is. In Jesus, the eternal entered into the flow of time. The author of reality stepped into the pages of his own creation. God arrived in person. Mark doesn't give us the option to leave Jesus in the cradle, a cute baby, a nice story, as nice as as it is. He doesn't allow us to move on. He never even focuses there, so we get stuck there. He confronts us right away with the sky being torn apart, and there are big questions. There are big questions that we are challenged to consider if this is real. For example, is God even real? Is God real? Or what does he want from us? Or are we right with him? Where will we go when we die? Is there more to life than just what I see? These are things all of us should think about all the time, but especially, especially during Advent season. 
whether we've been Christian our whole lives or we're just starting to check out church for the first time, we should think about what Christmas actually claims to be. Advent, it means arrival. And what we're saying is that what we're saying is that God arrived into our world. We're saying that heaven broke open into earth. See, Advent is a good time to reevaluate. Unfortunately, a lot of times I think it's the time where we think the least deeply about these things, but we should think about it the most deeply. It's a good time to recalibrate how we think about Jesus. It's a good time to repent, and we'll get there at the end. So let me make it a little bit more direct, okay? When was the last time you thought seriously about these things? When was the last time you thought seriously about what's after death, about heaven, When's the last time you thought seriously about the purpose of your life? There's more to just going through the motions. When's the last time you thought seriously about Jesus? Not just as a little baby in a manger, but as God breaking into this world. First point, the divine. This is how Mark starts. Second point, the driven. The driven, which is about why Jesus came. You know, Christmas, one of the things I love about it is that it's kind of warm and fuzzy. You know, it's like hot cocoa and it's like fires and stuff like that. And while we do mention a few of the negatives in the story, right, generally we focus on the positives. Right? We focus on the angels and we focus on peace on earth and the magi. And we even kind of sing about things in a positive way. We sing about joy to the world and, you know, the angels singing and it was a silent, peaceful night and stuff like that. And we only casually mention the villains of the story. This isn't a story for villains, right? Like we mentioned Herod a little bit and kind of fun fact, uh, I was, uh, in a Christmas play once and I was King Herod. So make it that what you will. They saw greatness in me at a young age, I guess. Part of me being a pastor is I need to atone for that. So I was King Herod and they also mentioned the most villainous person uh, of all in the Christmas story, the innkeeper. Like, what kind of guy doesn't let a pregnant woman who's about to give birth stay in your inn? Okay, actually, if you read the Bible, there is no innkeeper. Okay, never talks about the innkeeper, but we like to talk about this guy as the villain of Christmas. And that's about as bad as it gets. No one wants to talk about Satan at Christmas. But Mark wants to talk about it. To the wilderness, that's where Mark takes us next. In the presence of who? Satan, the devil. And it's because that's what the Holy Spirit took Jesus next after his baptism. If you look at verses 12 and 13, the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. There's not a lot of detail here. Again, the Holy Spirit who just descended on Jesus like a dove, Mark says, immediately just drives him out into the wilderness. And Mark's style is almost violent here in how quick it is. The word for drove out, actually, if you look in the Greek, it's the same word for exorcism. So it's not that Jesus was exorcised like a demon, but it's the same kind of imagery, the same kind of idea that Jesus was just being cast out, a sort of movement where you're the one being compelled to move. This isn't like a scenic walk that Jesus took, a nature hike, just getting out of town to decompress a little bit. He's thrown into the wilderness, into temptation, into battle. Now, the people of Israel were quite familiar with the wilderness. We, we uh, are given no explanation here, and they just assume, Mark just assumes that there is no explanation needed. 
But the people understood that the wilderness was a place of testing. Right? King David was in the wilderness for many years when he was on the run from Saul, who was trying to kill him. Israel notably spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness, and it's the same place. It's, it's the area, the undeveloped area in between Israel and Egypt in the Middle East. The wilderness, it's where you are tested. It's where your trust in God would be strained to its breaking point. It's where the normal comforts of life simply didn't exist. People understood what it was and what it meant to be there. And you know, I've actually been there to the wilderness. I've shared about this before, but when I went to Israel 10 years ago, uh, it was 2012, so we thought the world was going to end, so I had to go to Israel. I'm just joking. That's a little Mayan joke for you. But when I went to Israel 10 years ago, we spent some time in the wilderness, about an hour, okay? So it wasn't 40 days, much less 40 years. Um, but we got off our nice air-conditioned tour bus, and our guide, my professor, said, I want you guys to soak in this experience, you know, of the wilderness. No AC, no protection from the elements. Turn off your phone. Let's just wander out here. And at first, it was fine. I was like, no big deal. And I'm just walking around with my shorts and my hat on and stuff. But after just a few minutes, the heat really started to get to me, right? I was out of the air conditioning now. I wasn't cool anymore. I wanted to sit down, and I thought maybe I'd read the Bible. I'd read, like, the book of Numbers or something. Um, so I sat down on this rock, and there were so many bugs. There were all these ants. So I didn't want to sit on this rock for too long because I didn't want, like, ants in my pants. And then even so, I stood up, right? But even standing, even, like, walking around was terrible because there were so many flies, like, everywhere. They're, like, landing on you. They're, like, everywhere in your face. It was miserable, and I, like, checked my phone. I think I've been there, like, 14 minutes or something at this point. And then we were there for an hour, okay? I mean, I'm sure you're surprised I survived this. But Jesus, okay, he went to the wilderness alone. And you kind of get, I mean, sometimes we don't think about just what it means to be kind of in the wild, in a terrible place where humans don't live, that's undeveloped. He went there alone for 40 days and this is a call back to Israel's 40 years. And he went not just for the express purpose of, you know, wandering around and kind of uh, LARPing as like an Israelite or something in the past, like just trying to get a, a, a feel for the experience, trying to appreciate what they went through. No, he went to undergo extreme and direct tempting from Satan. From Satan. Mark introduces Jesus and within like a verse or two, we're already talking about Satan. Now, let me explain. Satan is not a name. It's not his name. It's a, it's a title. It's a term. It means the adversary or the accuser. And we see him doing these things, almost like in a court. He is the one who is accusing. He is the one who is an enemy. From the limited amount we know, Satan was once an angel known as Lucifer, which means morning star. But he rebelled against God and fell from heaven. And since then, he's been called many things, the devil, Beelzebub, or Satan, the enemy right? The adversary. Jesus right away is taken out from this kind of beautiful scene, this transcendent scene where heaven breaks open and he is thrust into the wilderness by the spirit of God to be confronted by the greatest enemy. Now you might be thinking, why? Why does this happen? And again, it's interesting because Mark usually is the most detailed, but he barely focuses on what happens here. Mar, uh, Matthew and Luke, they actually talk about what the temptations were, right? what Satan said, how Jesus dealt with it, all of that. I mean, it goes into, it's a fascinating story if you want to read it. 
But Mark doesn't do it. Mark instead focuses on some different things. Look again, and he was in the wilderness, verse 13, for 40 days, being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. You might want to, you know, you might think that he might want to communicate what Satan said. Nope, he was with the animals. Animals and angels. I mean, what is this? I mean, it is what happened, but a lot happened, so why mention these things? Well, think about Christmas for a moment. And just bear with me. I'm going to come back to this, okay? But think about Christmas for a moment, because at Christmas, we also think about animals and angels. It's part of the story. Jesus was born in a stable with animals. Angels factor into the story a lot. An angel appeared to Mary. Angel appeared to Joseph. Angels appeared in the sky above the shepherds, singing glory to God in the highest and on earth peace. Now here the situation seems completely different. Right? Totally different. Different animals, different angels. And it is different animals and different angels. But the situation is actually not as different as we might think, if you understand what theologically is happening here. Okay, let me ask you this. What is your favorite Christmas song? And a Christian Christmas song, okay? I know some of you are thinking Rudolph or whatever. No, no, no. Okay, what is your favorite? Is it, you know, Joy to the World or Hark the Herald, Angels Sing or Silent Night? You know, a lot of these songs are actually hymns. They're very theologically rich. They teach us a lot about who Jesus is. However, even though, that they are, even though they are very good songs, many of them sort of have the same bent, okay? They are joyful and celebratory, which is appropriate, of course. But if you only think about the birth of Jesus through this joyful, celebratory lens, you might miss out on what's really there, okay? A few years back, a guy named Andrew Peterson, he wrote this song called Labor of Love. And I remember the first time I heard it, and I'm just going to read to you how it begins. Okay, the song goes, it was not a silent night. There was blood on the ground. You could hear a woman cry in the alleyways that night on the streets of David's town. And the stable was not clean. And the cobblestones were cold. And little Mary, full of grace, with tears upon her face, had no mother's hand to hold. And there's a reason why we don't sing the song in church, usually. You don't hear it at Christmas a lot. It's almost shocking. We don't want to think about, like, what actually biologically is happening during labor. We don't want to think about blood on the ground. We don't want to think about crying. We don't want to hear that. But if you think about it, okay, just for our purposes today, if you think about it, if it was a stable, if there were animals, for sure it was dirty, right? It was filthy. It was disgusting. And, of course, Mary was actually pregnant. And all the mothers here, you know, labor is not a walk in the park, Right? It's not the easiest or, or, or most like peaceful thing in the world. She didn't have an epidural. She wasn't in the hospital. There were no midwives, no family and friends to help. It was agony. It was lonely. It was scary. She had never had a baby before. And you say, Jesse, what are you getting at? Right? You're trying to make this least connection between angels and animals. That's not what I'm trying to do here. I'm trying to get at the point of what Mark is getting at. See, right after telling us who Jesus really is by telling us where he's really from, Mark shows us the scene of Jesus in the wilderness. And what we have here is temptation and enemy and wild animals. And the focus isn't on the sort of temptations they were. No, the focus is on the fact that Jesus had to be here at all. See, what we see here in 
more or less one verse that Jesus came to basically take on all the hard things in life that we face in this world. See, what he was confronted with is the human condition of being in a fallen world because of sin. Jesus has to go out into a place, into a wilderness where the ground is cursed because of sin. Now, the ground is cursed everywhere, but we cover things up with technology in our own ways. A little AC here, got some protection from the elements. We only stay for an hour in nature, and then we retreat back to our homes. But in the wilderness, we're reminded of what the world really is now, what things are like because of sin, that life is hard, that we are vulnerable, that the animals are not just cute pets that we can just go out and and nuzzle our face against. They can actually hurt us. There's danger in the wilderness, not to mention the spiritual element that there is an enemy out there that wants us to fall. We face temptation, and we at least fail more often than we like to admit. See, what Mark is doing here is reminding us that there is something wrong with this world. There's something wrong with this world. And Jesus was born into this. In fact, he was driven, you could say, into it. I mean, from his first breath, if you're really thinking about what's happening in the Christmas story, I mean, Mary, when you think about the pain of labor, that goes back to Genesis. Do you remember the fall? After the fall, after Adam and Eve plunged the world into sin, after they disobeyed God and rebelled against him, God pronounces a curse upon the ground, but he also says that labor will be painful now. It's a reminder of how things have changed now that human beings have uh, separated themselves from God by their rebellion and their sin. From his first breath, from the story of his birth, we are reminded of curse. And then, of course, right here, we think about him going out into the wilderness, going out into a place where he has to confront the same Satan that was in the garden, going out into a place where he is hungry, where he is tested. The Bible says in Hebrews 4 that he was tempted in every way as we are, not just in the wilderness. See, Jesus came into the brokenness of our world. And it's actually on every page. It's in the Christmas story. And Mark just wants to make sure that we don't miss it at all. He doesn't want us to be fascinated by Satan and Jesus' conversation, as important as that is. He just wants us to see that Jesus had to go into the wilderness. And there's more, right? Jesus, he had a hard life, right? He saw friends die. He had conflict with people. He was betrayed. And then ultimately he was killed unjustly. And at Christmas, we can gloss over just the sheer difficulty of what it meant to be born into this world. We can pretend it was a beautiful, perfect, silent night. And it was beautiful. And at times I'm sure it was silent. But the truth is the world on that night was just as fallen as it had ever been since Genesis 3. Look, you got to understand that God created the world to be good. If you read the beginning of Genesis, everything was good. Humanity and nature and God all living in perfect harmony, but humanity rebelled against God. They disobeyed. We disobeyed his one command, and through this one act of defiance, sin entered into the world. This is the bad news. Through us, we were the carriers of sin. And through sin came death, and our relationship with God was broken, and like dominoes, everything else fell apart too. 
This is why in Christianity we talk about things like salvation and reconciliation and forgiveness. Because what we teach is that every human being since, since then doesn't want to live for God, doesn't want to please God, doesn't even want to have anything to do with God. So here's something to think about this Christmas. All the brokenness of the world. Usually, I think we want to skip over it, but since we're in Mark, we can't. I know it's not pleasant, but think about, you know, the bigger issues in the world. Stuff at work, the pain you're going through, the sickness, the losses, the struggles. Think about these things, because Christmas, understand, it wouldn't really mean anything without these things. So you got to understand that Jesus didn't just come to generally inspire us. There's a reason Jesus left his throne in heaven. There's a reason he was driven into the wilderness. There's a reason he was born into this broken world. He actually became one of us without sin, but one of us in this world. Why? Salvation. And this leads to the last point. Quickly now, the decision. The decision, which is about what Jesus calls us to do. He calls us to make a decision. Verse 14, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus began his preaching ministry by proclaiming the gospel of God. Now the word gospel, it just means literally good news. In those days, if you announced, let's say, a military victory, your army won or something like that, you'd call it a gospel, right? An announcement. So Jesus is proclaiming the good news of God, keep reading verse 15, and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now, we have to understand something, okay? We just talked about the brokenness of the world The Jewish people at this time, they knew a little bit about the brokenness of the world. They were subjugated by the powerful Roman Empire. They weren't treated that well, and yet they knew that God had promised the world, they had promised them that he would send a Messiah, an anointed one, born in the line of David to lead them and to save them. He would establish the kingdom of God. This was their great hope. And in their minds, it was clear what would happen. They kind of imagined how it would look. The Messiah would be a great leader. Maybe an unstoppable warrior or military genius, maybe some kind of Alexander the Great-like figure, whatever way it looked, he would free Israel from Rome's oppression and its legions. He would establish the kingdom of God and uh, by reestablishing the kingdom of Israel, he would save them from their enemies and their pain and their sorrow. Theologians call this a messianic, the messianic expectation. They had this expectation that this is what the Messiah would do. And we know this. Jesus was the Messiah. He was the anointed one. He was the Christ. He was there to save. But if you look at verses 14 and 15 again, and you think about it, Jesus does not say what you might think he's going to say. Because at the end, he says, notice what he says. He's talking to his own people, and he says, repent and believe in the gospel. Now, what was John's baptism all about? Look at verse 4 again. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Why did he do this? Look at verse 2. 
We go up to verse 2. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John was sent to prepare the way of the, uh, of the Lord, to prepare the way for God. How did he do this? By calling people to repent of their own sins. So you got to understand that when Jesus and John show up on the scene, the most important thing, the most pressing thing, isn't all the problems out there, but that you would be reconciled to God. He's going back to the beginning. It was our sin that separated us from God. Now he says, repent and turn around. You have been far from God. It's time to come back. Jesus says the kingdom is here, and it makes sense because Jesus is the king. But before we expect him to solve all our problems, he calls us to repent. He calls us to repent. And he draws a line in the sand. He's like, either you keep walking away and go ahead, But what he's calling us to do is to actually turn around, to repent, to chart a new course in life. See, there are some people who just ignore what Jesus expressly says and go on their own way, and they end up at a different destination. But Jesus is calling us, even us, through this text to repent. See, you know, I I grew up, okay, I grew up believing in God my whole life. Okay, I, I grew up in church. I knew the story of Jesus. I was even in the Christmas play where I was King Herod. And I would pray, right? I would say grace before meals. I would sometimes ask Jesus for things that I wanted, even needed. I had no problem with Jesus. Okay, I felt like I was on his team, or he was on my team. But the thing was, okay, I never considered the most fundamental issue. I never thought about whether or not I was actually right with God. I'd assumed I was since I went to church. I had Christian parents. I had memorized a few Bible verses. I prayed sometimes, and I believed that God was real. But the thing was, I wanted Jesus to go my way. Like when I didn't want to think about him, I didn't. When I didn't want to do what the Bible said, I didn't. When he wanted me to do some things I didn't want to do, I just said no. And when I needed something from him, that's when I went to him and said, look, Jesus, this is what I want you to do for me. It never occurred to me to think logically about it. Wait, Jesus is king, not me? Therefore, shouldn't it be the other way around? Shouldn't I have to do what he wants me to do? So this is kind of how I was living. You know, I remember even thinking, you know, the best life would be to do whatever I want. And then at the very end of my life, on my deathbed, become a Christian so I can go to heaven and not go to hell when I die, because why would I want to live for something besides myself? But then one day, years ago, I was confronted with the reality of the situation. And I've shared this before about how I became a Christian, but the gist of it was, I realized that I had been uh, living a sinful life. One of my friends called me out on it, actually. He said, you say you're a Christian, but you don't do what Jesus wants, so are you even a Christian? And I remember I was so offended. How could you say this to me? Because of all these things. But he was right. It didn't sit well with me. And I realized my life wasn't pleasing to God, that a lot of what I was doing was against what he wanted. And for the first time, I realized that God didn't just exist to save me from all my problems. No, what he actually wanted first and foremost for me and from me was to save me from myself. He wanted me to repent of my sins. I realized that I needed forgiveness and grace. And I I can't totally explain it. 
I don't know exactly why this happened, why my friend talked to me that day or what. And looking back, I feel like God was just after me in a sense. And even then, I, I wanted to walk away. I didn't want to change the course of my life. Part of me loved living for myself. I didn't want to repent and believe. But deep down, I knew there was this conviction that God placed in my heart that he was real and that to walk away meant I was walking away from salvation and eternal life and a relationship with God himself. And spoiler alert, I did become a Christian. By the grace of God, through the ministry of faithful people in my life, I repented and I believed and I actually was saved. Praise God. But that's where I want to leave you guys today. Because it's easy to talk about Jesus. It's easy to mess around. It's easy to go to church. It's easy to be Christian sometimes on Sundays only or maybe just during the Christmas season. It's easy to know a lot. It's easy to even bow your head in prayer sometimes, especially when you're desperate for something. And yet, at the same time, still want to go your own way. You see, Jesus showed up into our world from heaven. And he entered into our condition to save us. And what he said was, if you want to be saved, simple, repent and believe. You have to want to come to him. You have to want to actually give your life to him. You actually have to want him. So this Christmas, Mark isn't going to let us hold Jesus at arm's length. He's not going to let us view Jesus any way we want. He's not going to let us think that we're okay just going our own way. There are eternal matters of heaven and hell, life and death. And what we have today is the opportunity to go a different way, to go Jesus' way. We'll close here. Look, it's not that Mark never talked about Mary or Jesus' family or anything like that. It just happens later, okay? And the one time we see Mary more directly is toward the end. And just listen to this, Mark 15. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this is, truly this man was the son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. Now, you might almost miss it. She's kind of receded into the background as a side character. She's not center stage as she is in Christmas. But right there in the middle between Salome and Mary Magdalene is Mary, the mother of James the Younger. James was the younger brother of Jesus. This is Mary. This is the Mary that we sing about. And we hear some of the same story beats. But instead of God, it was a Roman centurion who declared Jesus the Son of God. And it was dark, like when he was born, but this time it wasn't night. And heaven, instead of being torn open, was closed, in a sense, as the father turned his face away from his son. 
But you got to understand that this is why he was born. As someone once said, here's a side to the Christmas story that isn't often told. Those soft little hands fashioned by the Holy Spirit in Mary's womb were made so that nails might be driven through them. Those baby feet, pink and unable to walk, would one day stagger up a dusty hill to be nailed to a cross. That sweet infant's head with sparkling eyes and eager mouth was formed so that someday men might force a crown of thorns onto it. That tender body, warm and soft, wrapped in swaddling clothes, would one day be ripped open by a spear. Jesus was born to die. You see, this Christmas, okay, try at least to not picture Jesus as a ninja. Don't think of him only when you want to win a race or when you want something at all. And don't only picture him as baby Jesus, as if he always stayed in the cradle. Jesus was born to go to the cross and eventually to sit down at the right hand of the Father on a throne. So behold him as the king of heaven and earth, for so he is. Behold him as the son of God sent from heaven above, for so he is. And behold the man upon a cross, our sin upon his shoulders. He is one and the same. You have to make a decision about what to do with this Jesus. Will you bow your heads with me? I actually want to give you this time. Just keep your head bowed. But instead of me just closing in prayer, I want to give you this time, just a couple minutes to respond in your hearts to the call of Christ. And we don't do this often. We don't do altar calls at Zoe. But I think it's important to give space sometimes for for you to consider where you're at with God. Because maybe you do like Jesus, okay? Maybe you like Christmas Jesus, baby Jesus. Maybe you say grace sometimes, even come to church. But the truth is you never actually repented. You never actually come to Jesus as your king. You never actually submitted yourself to his lordship saying, let me live for you in the way you want. I know I'm the problem. I need forgiveness for my sins. Save me from myself. I need grace. But if that's you today, if you feel like God is convicting your heart, if the Holy Spirit is doing something inside of you, and you're just thinking, you know what, if I die today, I don't know if I'd go to heaven. I don't know if I'm actually right with God. It's simple. Today is a day to repent and believe. Just pray silently to God. God, I've been living for myself, and in doing so, I've been dead in my sin. I want to live for you. Please help me. I can't do it myself. I believe in Jesus, and I know that he died on a cross for sinners like me, that he paid the penalty for my wrongdoing. I know salvation is in him. And if you feel that God is stirring your heart toward that, if you prayed a prayer like that, just know that that's God. He's working. And for all the rest of you, even if you've been Christian for ages, I do want to give you this moment too to get your heart right. Because I think at Christmas, sometimes we can coast. And we're not blown away or impacted by what we're actually talking about. Christmas is a time where we give glory to God for glorious truths and glorious realities. So just spend a minute, maybe. I'll just give you this minute. Jeff will lead us in a couple of songs, but just for a minute. Just recenter your heart to where it should be.